hearts that oppose the Lord God. There is nothing new with this. It has been this way since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, although their government at first consisted of Adam and Eve. As they grew and societies grew, it didn't take long for there to be societal problems. And there had to be issues of things like capital punishment and what we do with sin and all those things. God was very directly involved as he is today. As those who have been regenerated in our spirits and transformed through faith in Christ and into the image of God in Christ, We believe in the moral standard from God's word. And we believe it is the only standard that should be of concern. So we would disagree with what Mr. Nader said. We would say, in fact, only God's truth, only God's way should be what's important in any society with any people or any government. What we would like our government to produce is peace and truth. And we don't mean any truth, certainly not. We mean the truth of God's word. And it's only that truth that will bring us where God wants us to be, where we can experience, even in civil government, the peace and truth that governments should provide. Now, as we've gone through the book of Esther, we have seen the development of evil in a man named Haman especially, and how he was in it for himself and for his greed. He was a murderer, and he wanted to put to death the Jews. And if you were here last time when we talked, we found out that that had been put down, and the Jews fought for themselves, and they made a victory over their enemies in the Persian Empire. Now, I want to pick this up in verse 20 of Esther 9. Now, just, just so you remember... Mordecai is not just another guy at the king's gate. He is now taking the place of Haman only in the sense of his power and authority. And he has the king's signet ring. And he's going to use that ring in the governing of the Persian Empire. And I want you to think of it this way. So the Jews have been saved. 75,000 enemies of Jews have been killed in Persia alone. 500 in the city of Susa. And now it's over with and the Jews are saved. And they did that in the month of Adar. Now verse 20 says this, Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, both near and far. Now the last guy to do that was Haman, and Haman sent out a letter that said on the 13th of Adar in that month, you can put to death your neighbor if he's a Jew, you can kill all the Jews, and whatever they have you can take. So in my case, you know, they would, they would kill me if I was a Jew in those days. And they'd come over and take the church lawnmower that's in the back and my lawnmower. And then they'd start taking everything else that I have. And that would be a, a bad thing. But then I wouldn't care because I'd be dead. But what if you had kids? What if you had a wife that you loved? What if you had neighbors and relatives that there were Jews living around you? That was a horrible, horrible thing to come out. But I want you to notice the difference in this. So let me start again. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. So that's 127 provinces. Obligating them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them, for the Jews, from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So you see the great contrast there. We went from people that were mourning to celebrating a holiday. And they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing 
and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The Jews still celebrate Purim, and they still celebrate and have wild parties and get-togethers and parades and all that stuff. And we just saw one picture that was more mild of some of the celebration that they have. Why, the, why these two days, the 14th and the 15th? It's because in the provinces outside of Susa, they finished doing what they needed to do to their enemies on, on the 14th, but in Susa they went an extra day and they finished their enemies on the 15th. So Mordecai says, we'll make both of those days a celebration. Now verse 23. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and cast poor, which is the lot. So he casted lots. And what he was trying to do was find a day uh, that would be good to slaughter the Jews. So they kept casting these lots over a period of time. They finally came up with the date of the 13th of Adar. He schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor. And that is the lot, to distribute them, I'm sorry, to disturb them and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on the impaling poles. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions of the letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed times annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, notice this, words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentation. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it is written in the book. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute, in other words, he taxed the land, and on the coastlands and the sea. So he's back to doing kingly things like taxing. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Notice, not just the Jews. All right, let's go back and look at some of the things in here. Uh, just marvel at the fact that God started with a young, a beautiful uh, young girl from, from Judah uh, who was also very beautiful on the outside. And he brought about the downfall 
of the enemies of the nation of Israel. And Mordecai, of course, had a big part of that. They faced death, they believed, they trusted, and God delivered. We don't want to forget that. Now in verses 20 to 22. We often commemorate the great things that God has done in our lives to save us. So what's happening here in this particular passage is they wanted to say, look, God has done a great thing for us. God has saved us. God brought us away from the destruction that Haman had brought on the nation. And let's celebrate it. Let's commemorate it. And so that's a normal thing for people to do. Uh, People outside of uh, Christianity, uh, they do celebrations for different things that maybe we wouldn't celebrate. uh, But we also have some things in common. If you were a Jew in the days of Esther, you would be very thankful to God for saving your life, the life of your wife, your husband, and the life of your your kids, your family. And that would be something that you'd want to praise God for. Imagine the Persian government had allowed the issuance of a decree that if they wanted to, their Gentile neighbors uh, or any Jew around them, they could kill on the 13th of Adar, no questions asked from the government, no police intervention, no army stopping you, and they did it with the full blessing of the government, basically Haman. Satan has been trying to destroy the people of God, the people of Israel, from their inception. Satan has been after them. Why? Because he knew the Messiah was coming from from Judah. He knew the Messiah would rise up out of Israel. So if I can get rid of Israel, I get rid of the Messiah. And uh, Satan has been after them ever since the beginning. God has protected them in Esther's situation here. And he kept a remnant through all history as he did here. And he will do it again in the great tribulation that is coming on the world. Remember that the church will be raptured out before that tribulation. People will come to know Christ as Savior during the tribulation. And when they finally see Jesus coming back to the Mount of Olives, it says all Israel will be saved and they will see this is the Messiah. This is the King. We missed him. And now they're going to believe in him. So there'll be this unbelievably huge turning to Jesus Christ at the end of those days when God pours out his white hot wrath on those who live wickedly and those who hate him. Mordecai and Queen Esther are going to be putting down in writing that the 14th and 15th of Adar will annually be a great celebration by the Jews to commemorate the deliverance God has given them. And I think I mentioned the Jews still celebrate this today. It's still something that happens. Because of the full authority that was given them back in uh, verse 29, uh, speaking in terms of the Persian government, They make it an obligatory rule, and it has to be followed. Remember, before Haman died, the king took the signet ring off of his hand, and he gave it to Mordecai. Now Mordecai is the second most powerful man in Persia, right under King Xerxes. What are they commemorating? What is it they want to celebrate? Well, there was a government order to kill all the Jews, but it had been upended by another order that Mordecai had written, miraculously giving them the opportunity to fight back. And they not only fought back, they won, and they slaughtered all of their enemies. They didn't suffer any harm as far as the text is concerned. They saved their families. One thing they didn't do, they never took a single thing that belonged to their Gentile neighbors. They didn't steal or plunder anything. They left it there. Now, I'm sure somebody else came along and took it, but not the Jews. See, their motivation was their preservation and not their prosperity. 
Instead of the Jews being annihilated on that day, the Jews defended themselves, and they did it with God's help. Twice in, the, in bygone passages, it says that the dread of God, the dread of Yahweh, and the dread of Mordecai because of Yahweh fell on all of their enemies. In fact, it was so bad that some of the enemies were actually saying, you know what, it would be better to be on Israel's side. So they were uh, jumping ship, and they were going to be with those, uh, those Jewish people and became proselytes. Uh, God did that as well. God is in the business of taking that which is bad and bringing good out of it. What is bad in us is we inherited sin. What is good in us is the living spirit of God and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ's blood so that we can have eternal life. And God took something like me that was bad and he gave it something very good, which is salvation. On that day, God turned sorrow into gladness and weeping and mourning into a good day. The result would be that the people would turn that whole thing into a holiday and they would feast, they would rejoice, and they would remember what happened as well, so there'd be some fasting in there, and they would send food gifts to each other, and they would give gifts to the poor. Psalm 30, verse 5 and verse 11. If you want to look at that with me for a minute. Psalm 30. I just wonder if you have ever experienced... God taking something that was bad in your life and turning it into good. I wonder if you've ever experienced God taking tears in your life, drying them up and turning them into joy. Notice what it says in Psalm 30, verse 5. Speaking of God, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but shouts of joy come in the morning. Now drop down to verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. And so he says, my soul will praise you. If we get sideways with Jesus, if we have not learned to worship while in and through pain, if we have secret sin that we have refused to confess, We will not experience the things we're just reading about here, not in Mordecai's day and not in the psalmist's day. You see, choosing sin over righteousness can cause problems for us. Choosing sin over righteousness can cause problems. If you would look with me in the book of Lamentation, chapter 5, which comes right after uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached to people who would not listen, and they continued in their sin. So God brought Nebuzaradan, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's bodyguard, down. He destroyed them, and he took them out of the land. The picture in Lamentations is that Jeremiah has perched himself on a hill where he can watch the people get the consequences of their sin, which is to be led out of the land and up to Babylon. Many of them had hooks through their jaws with chains to the next person in line who had a hook in their jaw, and they were led out. Jeremiah is on a hill and he is weeping. That's why it's called lamentation. In Lamentation 5, 15 and 16, he says this. As Jeremiah looks at the people, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning, which is the result of sin. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And that's what we get when we uh, choose sin over righteousness. When God forgives our sin, when he rescues us from our sin and the dangers of this world, 
or after he disciplines us for a while, joy can come in the morning. God will always meet us with that which is good when we confess. I believe that communion is a celebration of that joy whenever we have communion. We are celebrating our oneness with each other, our oneness with Jesus Christ, our oneness with all those who have been in the church before us and all those who will be in the church after us. And it's a celebration of joy. Why? Because we have fellowship with God. We have forgiveness of sin. We have the ability to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ and be accepted by him. Joy comes in the morning. Verses 23 to 28. We should commemorate and not forget to celebrate the good, the good God has done for us. The Jews had already responded in rejoicing, and now it's written down. It's codified. It is also a law. In verse 24, there, there has been a, a ceasing of the wicked rampage against God's people. Haman had cast the lot poor to determine the day of destruction of the Jews, not knowing that God's in control of those things, not a man. Evil is never resting, always planning to do the three things that Satan stands on, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And that's what he wants to do with your life and with the nation and with anybody else in his way. When this came to the attention of King Ahasuerus, he commanded that the wickedness be turned on its head, the head of Haman and Haman's family. He took the dead bodies of Haman's sons that the Jews had, had executed and impaled them on impaling poles. He is not the first pagan king that God has used to take care of God's people. Nebuchadnezzar had the same thing happen to him and other Persian kings. And so the name of the new festival is called Purim. Purim. And that is to commemorate the casting of the lots, how God turned it upside down. And so the name of the festival for most is Purim. In an intertestamental book that we don't accept as scripture, in other words, between the last writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we call that an intertestamental period, uh, there was another couple books written called First and Second Maccabees. And in Second uh, Maccabees 15.36, it says that the Jews also called it the Day of Mordecai. And um, it may be the festival that Jesus went to, although it's not named, uh, but the timing seems right. He may have gone to the festival in John chapter 5 and verse 1. Now back in verse 27. The Jews established a custom for themselves and their descendants about keeping Purim. The celebration is not to fail or fade from memory. When you're married, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure you remember your anniversary because that was important. And so every year you commemorate that, right, guys? Uh-oh. Yeah, we do. Now, I injured my finger and I had to cut my ring off. And inside that ring, my wife lovingly put the date of our anniversary. I don't have it in this thing, but I, I got it now. I know exactly when it is. And you commemorate that because it means something. We eat the Lord's Supper together because it means something. Now, we also celebrate Thanksgiving because to us it means Thanksgiving to God. We're going to celebrate Christmas because it's the birth of our Savior. We're going to celebrate Easter because it is the resurrection of our Lord, that final seal of salvation that God gave us. Sadly, we live in a world where Thanksgiving is not for many people anything about thanking God. Uh, Christmas is all about presents and getting together and being a family and watching football and all that. Many people don't even bring God into it. Easter certainly is fading as something that 
people in the community that don't know God are participating in. But we want to remember. We don't want to give it up. And it's the same with Purim for the Old Testament people. It's not a Torah celebration. Nor is it specifically religious except to say that it is commemorating that God loves his people. He takes care of them and he will save them, which to me makes it religious. We celebrate communion as a covenant community to remember that because of Jesus and what he did, we have eternal life and, not and we will not experience eternal destruction. Satan had one plan for us and Jesus said, no, I have another plan for you. And we commemorate that at the communion table. That's why it's a place of joy and peace. If we knew much about the Old Testament sacrifices, we would know that when they went to the, to the temple to sacrifice, basically uh, you would go through about five different sacrifices, like a whole burnt offering, a sin offering, a wave offering, a grain offering. You do all these things, and you do them before you finally do an offering where you can sit with your family and friends and get a part of that offering so you can eat it together. That was a peace offering. Get it? You have to go through all those sacrifices, then you can have peace, and then you can eat with your friends and before God. What you don't see are five different sacrificial tables between the back of the church and the communion table because Jesus fulfilled them all. You just walk in and you celebrate your peace with God. No sacrifices, it's been done. No blood, Jesus already shed it. No, nothing that you have to pay. You just come here and celebrate your peace with God. I think that's an amazing thing. They had to be reminded of all that stuff. God just gave us peace, so we commemorate it. Verses 29 to 32, with Mordecai at the helm, he's now second in charge. The government brought peace and truth to the nation. In verse 29, with full Persian authority, the feast of Purim is confirmed. In verse 30, this letter is a letter of peace and truth from the top levels of the government. Mordecai wrote it, used the king's signet ring. That means it's from him. And uh, the government is now doing what is right. They're not out to kill a group of people, but to let them live. The former letter by Haman uh, was, was not good. It was bad. It was about death and bloodshed. This is about truth and peace that now has come, unfortunately, because of the enmity that people had against the Jews, but now it is gone. This is a letter where there is peace and truth, and it is, it is bathed in the peace and truth of God. The threat is gone. A good government brings the complete package to its citizenry. It brings truth and peace. And the senator that was trying to get God's will to be considered on the house uh, uh, floor of the representatives was exactly right. That's what it should be. People should want to know what God thinks in government. A citizenry cannot have true peace apart from that which is real truth, God's truth. In verses 31 and 32, this explains how the Jewish festival of Purim became the command for the Jews and the Jewish people that they still celebrate today. And then our last section, a summary uh, of the book and how things went from there. In verses 1 to 3 in chapter 10, God blessed the nation by putting a righteous man in a powerful position. Ahasuerus kept doing things kings do. He imposed a big tax. Now, uh, the Jews didn't like taxes, but it was sure better uh, in funding a government that was for their life than one that was against them. Uh, 
And we don't like taxes either, but Jesus said that what is belonging to Caesar, you pay Caesar. What belongs to God, you pay God. God advanced the greatness of Mordecai, and in so doing, he advanced the welfare of the entire group of Jews and the other people of the nation. There's a Christmas thing going on. Is that you? I still have 10 minutes. Okay. God advanced the greatness of Mordecai, and in so doing, he advanced the welfare of entire people groups within the nation. We believe in justice for all. We don't believe that people should be prejudiced. That's not biblical. We believe that all people are created in the image of God. We believe that all people have worth and value. And because of that, we're against abortion. Because of that, we're against euthanasia. We believe that each human being carries the image of God and need to be treated with respect and with love and honor them. We don't honor what they do if it is sin, but we certainly honor them as a person. This man sought the good not only of the Jewish people and his whole nation, but it says the people of the nation. That means every people group. And you can imagine with 127 different provinces, all kinds of different people groups are represented. And Mordecai made sure that they had peace and truth as well. Everyone benefits when the righteous rule. No one benefits when the wicked rule. Jeremiah 29.7 says this. And he's talking to, Jeremiah was talking to the Jews and said, you know what? You're, you're in Babylon. Some of you have already been captured. And here's what you need to do. He said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, speaking for God, into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For it in its welfare, you have welfare. So what he was saying was this, yes, the Babylonians grabbed you. Not everybody's there yet, but lots of you are. You're living in Babylon or thereabouts. And he says, I want you to pray for Babylon. I want you to pray for the king. I want you to pray for the rulers. And I want you to pray for the welfare of the city, that God would bless Babylon, that God would bless what's going on there. I think it's because of some of those prayers that Nebuchadnezzar ends up becoming a believer after God deals with him. Who knows what could happen if God's people would fervently, earnestly pray for our president, our vice president, for our Senate, for our House of Representatives, both at a national and local levels. It is our duty to pray for the welfare of the United States of America because we live in the United States of America. If it goes well between America and God, it'll go well with us. So let's be praying like Jeremiah told them to do. Are you and I praying for our leaders and our government, both locally and nationally? Can Yahweh still turn sorrow into, into joy and dancing? Maybe God is testing our faith. Oswald Chambers said this, and I quote, Faith must be tested because it can only become your intimate possession through conflict. Faith must be tested because it can only become our intimate possession, where we really own it, through conflict. Well, we have seen this play out in real time in the book of Esther, and we need to apply the lessons that we've learned from it. 
Sometimes you feel like God is not answering you. Sometimes you feel like God isn't there for you anymore. Sometimes you feel like, I wish he would just do something. And the book of Esther teaches us that he is never not there for you. He has never abandoned you. He has never forsaken you. Even though he may not give you the answers to your prayers, he is working and he's putting things together so they end up for the good of the people of God and for his glory. So if you're going through situations like that, look around and ask yourself, what is God doing? See what's happening and recognize his hand in that and everything that is going on because he may be silent, but he is never inactive. It may look like he's doing nothing, but he's always working. And that's what I want us to learn most of all. Now, I like to say Dr. Schmutzer's name because it's fun. And I didn't want to get out of the book of Esther without quoting him one more time. (laughs) So Dr. Andrew Schmutzer said this, and I quote, Believing through times of crisis develops faith. Believing through times of crisis develops faith. These people, Mordecai, Hadassah, all the other Jews, they, they were in a terrible situation, horrible situation. And you'll notice there's, there's no sign of any prophet speaking to this age or, or these people in particular. Uh, there's not even God's name in this book. But I want you to know that God expects you and me, when things aren't going well, When it's not going the way we want it to, he expects us to live by faith. He expects us to live by faith. And this book says, look what can happen if you live by faith. The second thing I want us to take with us is that the advent of difficult times should not be able to stop our worship. The advent of difficult times should not be able to stop our worship. You know what? That's not mentioned in here either. Now, the play that Noel and I watched last night, you know, God's name is being used all the time. And they have Mordecai praying and Hadassah praying and others praying. The book doesn't mention any of that. I think it happened, but the book doesn't mention it because it doesn't want you to see what God is teaching you with that. He wants you to see that you and I need to be faithful when he isn't talking when he doesn't seem to be working. And he says, if you'll look, you'll find that I'm there. Thirdly, every government will answer to God for the way that they governed. There will be a day of reckoning for those who don't want God in the government. Fourthly, God expects righteousness from the government and that they promote real peace and real truth. And the last one is this. Our Jesus is in the business of turning sorrow into gladness. Our Jesus is in that business. We deal with our sin. We go before the throne. And God is merciful. Let's pray and we'll be done.